we plan to finish the book of Nehemiah tonight, so I feel like that's pretty good progress to get this far in a little over two months. We've studied the book of Ezra and uh, finishing the book of Nehemiah. That should give us a little bit of time to talk about Esther starting next week. Uh, so let's get our Bibles out. Uh, we'll do a little backtracking because I skipped over chapter 8 last week. I want to come back to that under the theme, a holy city. The city we're talking about, of course, is the city of Jerusalem, a holy city. Uh, last week we started by talking about Nehemiah's work in building physical walls. And, uh, you know, the, the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt in 52 days, and we compliment Nehemiah quite a bit about his leadership skills in, in getting that job done. But if you remember, last week we said Nehemiah came to also build spiritual walls. And the spiritual walls are the most important. The reason the physical walls came down in uh, 586 B.C. was because the spiritual walls had already collapsed around that city. And if the physical walls Nehemiah led Israel to restore, if they were going to continue to stand they would have to be supported by spiritual walls. It's like the walls of your house. What you see is paint and sheetrock or wood paneling maybe. But what's really holding the structure up is the framework behind all of that superficial wall. And uh, that's what is necessary for the house to stand. The same thing is true in Jerusalem. If the people of Israel were going to continue as a nation, they would have to put up spiritual walls. And Nehemiah knew this, and he and Ezra worked together to ensure those spiritual walls were there. That's why we're talking at the close of Nehemiah about the holy city. They were going to make sure this city, that is the people inhabiting the city, were pure and holy according to the word of God. So there's a lot in this lesson about the law or the word of God, because that's uh, following the word is how they made the place holy. So let's get started. First of all, Nehemiah chapter 8, we're going to see the law read. Um, and we're going to read from the law about how they read from the law. So let's begin Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So whose idea was it to read the book of the law? What does it say? The people. Isn't that interesting? These are the people who had been through all of this. And you see the, the spiritual condition of them now is such that they are the ones that initiate the idea of the reading of the law. Now, we could debate over what the law signifies here. Is it the five books of Moses? Is it just the book of Deuteronomy? Is it portions of it? But you'll see that they spend a lot of time reading this, and it could very well be the entire Torah, the five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Uh, verses 2 and 3 say, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate, from early morning 
until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. It's a commendable audience. They show a great deal of respect for the Word of God. Now let's dig into this a little bit and notice how they expressed that respect for the Word as it was being read. And there are several things to note here. First of all, they were attentive. Verse 3, the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. I had a conversation with my son this morning about how boring school is. He's the one that made the proposition that school is boring, not me. And uh, I told him, I said, you get out of things what you put into them. So if you go in expecting boring, it's going to be boring. But if you go in thinking, I'm going to learn something today, and this is going to help me get to the future that I want, and, and I get to learn beside my friends, and I get to go to this great place, if you have that attitude, then you're going to get a lot out of school. And he just kind of laughed at me. But it's true. You get out of something what you put into it. I remember I was having a hard time with um, history my freshman year in college because the professor just seemed really dull. He didn't use a book or anything. He knew his American history so well. He just sat on the edge of his desk, crossed his legs, and just started talking until I think it was an hour and a half class, until the 90 minutes were up. And uh, I was just having trouble staying awake. So I decided I was going to treat it like story time. I'm just going to be this guy sitting here listening to a good story. And I was going to try to pay attention to this and, and really learn these stories. And as I changed my attitude, my mentality, I found cl class to be a lot more interesting. And this is how the people were treating the law on this occasion. It wasn't just a boring sermon. It wasn't yet another reading of the word. They wanted the Word to form their lives, and in order to, to have that done, they had to hear what it said and understand it. They had to listen very carefully. So I think this has a lot of applications today with you know, Bible classes and worship services and your own personal study of the Word of God. If you go into it thinking, this can change me, this can make my life better, I can get something out of this, then you're going to be more attentive than if you say, well, if you just take it for granted and you say, this is yet another boring lesson uh, that I've been listening to my whole life and I can't learn anything new. So number one, they were attentive. Number two, they were respectful. Look at verse four. Verse 4 says, Ezra stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood several men on his right hand and on his left hand. And then verse 5 says that Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people because he was above the people. And what happened when he opened the book? What did the people do? They stood up. Now we'll stand for prayer and for singing but uh, we rarely stand for the reading of God's Word. I think the last time we did that, Will, you might have had us do that um, recently. And it's very effective. Standing is still a sign of respect. And it was then. Now, they stood for a long time. As far as we can 
tell they stood the entire time the word was being read. And they read from early morning until midday. Now, he doesn't say what time it was when they started reading just morning to midday. It could have been three or four hours. And that answers your question, how much of the word did they read? Well, they read as much as you can read in three or four hours. So quite a bit. And uh, they wanted to be sure to hear every word. Verse 6 says, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So when they weren't standing, they were lying prostrate on the ground. Just imagine being in an assembly like that, where you're standing and then you're falling down to your knees, putting your faces to the ground, and then standing back up. The deep respect for God's word was evident on that occasion. And that's something that has really been lost in the world today. When I was coming up, I don't remember people being as bold in their criticisms of the Bible and of God's Word as I hear today. Um, You know, not long ago, I remember a British man on television calling God stupid. Now, you wouldn't, when I was growing up, I never heard anybody say anything like that, but we hear it all the time now. People daring to say the worst things about God and the Bible, even unbelievers had more respect for the Bible than that back 20, 30 years ago. With that disrespect growing at an alarming rate in our society, we have to be careful not to let it seep in. You know, we may unintentionally be developing some of that mentality about the Bible and God's Word and losing respect for it. We've got to continue to remember, this is the inspired breath of God. It is His Word. It is straight from heaven. It is the product of a miracle, and it should be treated as such. Number three, they were responsive. Back to verse 6, they said, Amen, which means, let it be so, or, you know, this is true. That's a way of agreeing with the, with the word as it was being read. Uh, they worshiped in response to it. So they're very responsive uh, in typical ways for their culture. Now, there's a lot of things here that would be distracting worship today. You know, I think if a person's heart's right, it would be perfectly fine uh, for them to bow down in worshiping God, except if it caused everybody in the worship service to be looking at that person instead of listening to what was being done. But there are a lot of other things that you can do to be responsive to the reading of the Word or the preaching of the Word. You can take notes. You can make eye contact with the speaker. You can listen attentively. You can um, do uh, other things, like you can write in the margins of your Bible. I learned a long time ago that if you want to retain what you're reading, you make notes in your book. You write in your book. And every book that I've read in my library has marks all over it because I just learned that I can retain stuff better by writing in the margins and underlining and circling and making connections and putting my own thoughts down. And uh, maybe that works for you. Find something that works where you can respond in a way that's not distracting and you'll get more out of the reading and the preaching of the Word. Which brings me to the next thing. 
they explain the word. Look at verses 7 and 8. Several qualified men helped the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the meaning so that the people understood the reading. Now, there is one interpretation that several people didn't speak Hebrew, and so somebody had to translate, but that's not what is said here. What is said is that they had to explain the meaning. Interpretation was going on. And that's important today. It's good to read the Bible publicly, but we still need preaching and teaching to explain what it means to illustrate and to make application to modern day, to show people how to live the word that is being read. Uh, you know, Timothy and Titus are taught to do that throughout their letters. I, I won't read examples from that this time. I think not long ago we read some things from Timothy and Titus along that line. So all these things were going on as the law was being read, and they are all things that we should be doing today, being attentive, respective, responsive, and making sure the, the word is understood through quality explanations. Let's go to the second part of this. After the law was read, verse 9 tells us that the law was mourned. The people wept as they heard the words of the law. That's a natural reaction because it had been a long time since they had heard the law. And you've already seen their deep respect for the law. So they're hearing about feasts they had never celebrated, sins that they had been committing, um, things about the character of God that they did not know, um, ceremonial requirements of the law as a part of the covenant with God that they had not been keeping. And just like any of us, when we hear a reading of the Word, they saw shortcomings. Now, I challenge you, when you're doing your Bible reading, to pause after each paragraph and examine yourself against what you've just read. That's what these people were doing. And they saw how short they had fallen, and they began to weep. They mourned. But this was not the time for mourning. Look at verse 10. Ezra and Nehemiah said, Don't mourn and weep. Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine. And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. It wasn't the right time for that. This was supposed to be a festive occasion uh, for celebration. But there are times when we do need to weep and mourn as the law is being read. Several passages in the New Testament show that. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 tells us that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, we don't want a worldly grief, which is an unproductive grief that doesn't result in repentance, but a godly grief is absolutely necessary for us to repent and align our lives with God's will. James is always talking about mourning and weeping over sin. And I'll, I'll take you to a couple of examples. Look at 
James chapter 4, verse 9. See what he says there. Listen to this. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's some serious mourning over sin. And chapter 5 begins, he's aiming here at the rich, not just people who are wealthy, but people who are wealthy and oppress the poor. But he says, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries coming upon you. That's some serious mourning. And so we can see in the New Testament the need for this whenever our lives do not line up with the Word of God. All right, let's get to the most interesting part for me, and that is, number three, the law as it was practiced. They read the law, and now the people give us five examples of how they put the law into practice. And the first example is in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 13 through 18, the first feast of tabernacles that had been celebrated in a long, long time. Um, it was a restoration of this feast. Now, I don't know how much you know about the Feast of the Old Testament. The Feast of Tabernacles was a very interesting one that commemorated the wilderness wanderings. Whenever Moses and the Israelites were in the wilderness wanderings, they didn't live, of course, in permanent dwellings, but they stayed in tents or tabernacles or booths, some translations have it, and uh, they would basically camp. And they did this for a long, long period of time until the first generation out of Egypt passed away because of their unbelief and their children were ready to cross the Jordan and receive the promised land that had been given to them by God. Now, this was to be remembered. There were a lot of lessons God wanted them to remember from the wilderness. And so he instituted this feast in the law of Moses. Every year they were to go out and they were to live for a week in a temporary shelter, a tabernacle, or a booth. Now you can see why maybe that would have faded out because the people, you know, it's, it's, it's a little inconvenient. You gotta take your time off work. You gotta get the materials together for your temporary dwelling. You gotta learn how to build it. And through time, people quit doing that. Not to mention they were in a 70-year exile in which they probably weren't allowed to do this kind of thing. And so they came back together to do it. Now, look at verse 17 of Nehemiah 8. It says that since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not observed this feast in this manner, and that there was great rejoicing. Well, we know this wasn't the first time ever since Joshua, the Feast of Tabernacles, was celebrated. But it was the first time that it had been celebrated with this level of enthusiasm and joy and appreciation. And this much attention to the details. They, they made sure they did everything right according to the Word of God. And um, that's, uh, that made it a very special occasion. So that's the first example of the practicing of the law. The next four examples are found in Nehemiah chapter 13. So turn your Bibles over to Nehemiah chapter 13. And before we get to the examples, I need to do a little bit of background here from verses 6 through 9 of Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah had returned to Persia. He never intended on moving to Jerusalem. 
He went to Jerusalem just in order to lead the effort of rebuilding the city. And when that was done, he went back to his post as cupbearer to the king. But he received a message while he was cupbearer to the king, kind of like the message he received that set all of these events in action. Uh, someone came from Jerusalem and reported to him that things were amiss again in the city. So verse 6 of Nehemiah 13 says, While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. Uh, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. So he received a report that this high priest, Eliashib, had um, allowed Tobiah to store his stuff in one of the rooms of the temple. And so that's the background. He, he's, he's gone to Persia. He's, he's serving the king again. He gets a bad report, and he has to go all the way back. Now, do you remember how long it took him to get to uh, Jerusalem the first trip? Four or five months, right? So this is a lot of trouble. But he wants to make sure that the law is practiced in the way that it should be practiced. This is how important it is to obey God. Now, with that background in place, let's look at the examples of the practice of the law in chapter 13. And the first has to do with something that we referred to already, the purification of the temple. Um, what happened was that this relative of the high priest, Tobiah the Ammonite, stored his belongings in one of the storerooms of the temple. Now, if you go all the way back to the end of chapter 2, you'll remember that there were three bad guys that opposed the building of the city, and they had it out for Nehemiah. They even plotted to kill him, and one of them was Tobiah the Ammonite. And... Uh, we learn here that he's some kind of a relative of the high priest in Jerusalem, and he used his connection to get special privileges. And moving his stuff, whatever it was, into that area, the chambers of the house of God, involved taking the temple provisions out of that room. Frankincense, other spices and incense for anointing oil, uh, silver and gold vessels, things that were consecrated and needed to be in the temple, they were removed for Tobiah's stuff. And so Nehemiah went back to make sure that the temple was purified, and he restored all the holy vessels and supplies to the rightful place. It's not necessary to understand, you know, what exactly happened, what was in the temple that didn't, didn't need to be in there. The point is that he wanted the temple to remain holy and he made sure that got right. So that's the, the first example from chapter 13. The next example is in verses 10 through 14, the restitution of Levitical support. Now, being a Levitical priest was a full-time job, but the people weren't paying their tithes to support the Levites. So what did the Levites have to do? They had to go out into the fields and grow their own food. They had to raise livestock so that they could feed their families. And Nehemiah saw, said, according to the law, this is not the way it should be. The Levites are special. They have these responsibilities the rest of you don't have. 
and it's a full-time job, you need to pay your tithes so that the Levites can be fully supported and have the time they need to devote to temple service. And so that was the second thing they did. They, they reinstituted Levitical support. Third example from chapter 13 is the Sabbath. The people had begun to work on the Sabbath. And uh, we all know that according to the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath day was to be kept holy. There was not any work to be done on that day. And so Nehemiah had to correct that and teach the people how to behave on the seventh day of the week, which was to rest and to worship and not do any work at all. And so he had to teach them that. And it makes you wonder, what were they doing in exile? You know, they clearly had a less understanding of the old law than we do. Because everybody knows that under the old law, you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. And we know the story about the man who's gathering sticks on the Sabbath, and, and they put him to death under the days of Moses. It was a very serious offense. But these people had to relearn so many things and you see this happening under Nehemiah's leadership. And I would include Ezra in there too. Now the last example is something that we saw in Ezra 9 and 10. And I, I won't belabor this point too much, but I, I want to I revisit it just to make sure we all understand what is happening. There had been some more intermarriage with foreign wives. And I want to reiterate, this was not a racial problem. It was a religious problem. It was a faith problem. And uh, Nehemiah brings up the example of Solomon. And he, he has them recall how King Solomon's heart was turned away from the Lord because he married all these foreign wives who worshipped idols. This is exactly what the people were doing. In fact, their children were not learning Hebrew, which means they couldn't read and understand the law. Uh, they spoke in the language of Ashdod, which was a Philistine city who worshipped idols. So... It's important that you know the language of sacred texts and you're going to learn whatever is taught in that language. They did not have translations into Philistine languages for the children to study into the language of Ashdod. And so they would grow up not knowing the law if they were not taught correctly. And so Nehemiah condemned these marriages on religious reasons, not racial reasons, and restored the law in that respect as well, as he did before. Now, these examples are somewhat interesting, but what's more interesting to me was Nehemiah's emotional state as he was leading them to practice the law properly. And I want to go back over the text and look at a few verses here. So if you're in chapter 13, look at uh, verse 8, which was in the event of Tobiah moving his furniture into the temple chambers. I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Now the verb there is threw. He picked it up and pitched it out onto the street. Now get that in your mind, and go down to verse 11. This is with regard to the um, support of the Levitical priests. Verse 11, so I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. So he confronts them with these 
these very serious questions. Look at verse 25. This has to do with the foreign wives. I confronted them. These are the men who had married the women from Ammon and Moab and Ashdod. I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them swear in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Now, how would you, what would you think if one of the elders started beating people up and pulling their hair out? <laughs> you know, this is, this is hard to imagine, right? And then uh, one more, verse 28. One of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, so Eliashib was the current high priest. One of his sons was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Now, I had to draw a little chart to understand Eliashib's family. We've already read that he had a, Tobiah the Ammonite was one of his relatives. That's one of the big three opponents. And now we learn that his son was married to Sanballat's daughter. So he is connected to all these bad guys, and he's the high priest. And this son-in-law of uh, Sanballat, uh, Nehemiah had to run off. He chased him out. This, these passages, by the way, make me think of, a, of Nehemiah in a different light. Um, my dad had this little joke when we were growing up that Nehemiah was Nehemiah, but he was not Nehemiah. He had to have been a big guy, you know, an intimidating physical force to be able to beat people up and pull their hair out and, and chase them off. Uh, it never says that he got hurt in doing this or that anybody, you know, braced up against him and, and fought back against him. They all ran away from him and they seemed to be scared of him. And as you look at this, you got to ask the question, is this appropriate behavior for a man of God? And I, I guess we could judge well, we can definitely judge some of the, the violent behavior, but I think what we really need to look at is what was at stake. Nehemiah couldn't stay there forever. He had to drive home to these people how important it was to practice the law of God. And everything was at stake here. Their sinful rebellion is what got Jerusalem destroyed in the first place. The spiritual walls collapsed before, and the people were taken into captivity, and God's covenant had been compromised. Now they had a second chance. Through the mercy of God, they were allowed to return, and they were already starting to allow the spiritual walls to collapse. And if it went much further, they would wind up destroying the nation through which God was bringing the hope of all the world, Jesus Christ. It was very important that they get this right at this moment in history. Especially the high priest, who seems to be at the center of a lot of these, these scandals. And so, yes, Nehemiah lost his cool several times. Yeah, he might have gone overboard. He might have been a little overzealous here and there. 
But in the end, he got the job done, and he drove home the importance. Now, this was a unique time. It's not, it's apples and oranges to, you know, a local church situation where we're established and somebody gets out of line. I don't think it's excusing an elder for acting violently. In fact, you know, an elder is disqualified if he does some of the things we see Nehemiah doing. But these were different times. It was a unique time, and everything was riding on their ability to practice the law. Okay, let's go to another point here. After we see the law practiced, we go back to chapter 9, and we observe the law confessed. As you remember, when they read the law, they began to weep because so many things were being read that they weren't doing. So in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, we read, that the people gathered together to confess their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Celebration was over, and now it was time for confession. And the confession is a survey of the history of the people. Let's read uh, some parts of this. We won't read the whole thing because it's rather lengthy. But um, let's look at verse 13. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with our fathers from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes, and commandments. So they say, your word is true, right and good. Then they continue, look at verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Go down to uh, verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, and cast your law behind their back, and killed your prophets, who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Verse 29, And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them, and they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Looking back over the history of their people, they saw example after an example of, of disobedience, stubbornness and rebellion, and God's graciousness and mercy. And every time they were given another chance, what did they do? They rebelled again, and they were stubborn again, and God would forgive, and they would repeat the cycle. And as they're confessing this, they're reminding themselves of this cycle and giving themselves an incentive not to repeat the mistakes their fathers had made. Let's go on and read a little bit more. Verses 32 and following. Well, verse 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. They know that he didn't make an end to them because they were still there. They had been able to return. So verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. 
Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Yes, we've been through a lot. We've suffered a lot. We've been through captivity. Many of us have died, but we deserved it. Now look, they're saying, look, God, on all our suffering and see that we've been punished, we've repented, we're confessing our wrongs, and we're ready to live according to your statutes. That brings us to the last part, the law committed. And it's committed in terms of a covenant. Go to chapter 10 and look at verses 28 and 29. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants... And all who've separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our God, and his rules and his statutes. Now that is a very interesting phrase there in verse 29, a curse and an oath. And what he's talking about there is a covenant. The word covenant is based on a root that means to cut. And the connection to cutting is blood sacrifices. Uh, one of the first covenants that you read about is the one God made with Abraham. When Abraham took animal carcasses and cut them in half, and he passed between the halves of the animal carcasses. There's a lot of blood involved in that covenant. And the blood stands for a curse. A covenant is basically an agreement between two people. That's indefinite. It's different from a contract. Sometimes I hear people talk about covenants in terms of contracts. Contracts have term limits. Covenants are unending. Covenants are agreements between people representing a, a special relationship of love. And a contract, you don't have to love the person you make contracts with. And the covenant is a way of saying, I will keep up my end of this or may God bring death on me. May God shed my blood if I don't. That's what all the blood and all the cutting is all about. And here it's even plainer as they call it a curse and an oath. The curse is, cursed be the one who doesn't abide by this covenant. And of course, that's not going to be God, because he always abides by his covenant. And the oath is a promise to keep the terms of the covenant. They are so committed that the people do this, and, and they make this covenant. And of course, we have a new covenant today. And the curse was brought upon Jesus instead of us. And the blood that was shed was Jesus' blood instead of the blood of animals or our own blood. We're the ones that deserved the curse. We're the ones that deserved to have our blood shed. But Jesus stood in our place, died for us, paid the debt that we owed, and that's how we are saved. This new covenant is a covenant paid for by the blood of the Son of God. And that's where we'll stop with the book of Nehemiah, the high place that the law was given 
in Jerusalem through the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. And that's the restoration of the city. So the last part of this will be the book of Esther. Esther took place before the things that we've been studying. And so the city had not been rebuilt yet, but her theme is a lot different. Esther is unique in that she's not in Jerusalem, yet she has a major role to play in restoring the honor of the people. So I look forward to getting into that when we get back together again.